Good evening and welcome. Glad you're here. I mentioned on Sunday that we were going to do things a little bit differently on Wednesday night. And of course, since we're dealing with a, a topic or a theme, dealing with marriage over the next few weeks, and one of the things I thought would be nice is instead of listening to me get yet another Bible study, um, that what we would do is engage in a Q&A, and not just with me, but a conversation. And I asked Dan and Janie McMahon, some of you know Dan and Janie, they have been part of our congregation for... Uh, 34 years? Is that right? 34 years. Uh, Dan was on the board for 17 or 18 years. 105. 105 years. <laughs> but uh, they, they were one of the first couples that I married when we came to Spokane. They've been married 32 years. We'll be, we came 33 years next in October. So they, we have this long history. And they're, they've been married through that entire time. No interruptions. They managed to produce six adult children, um, and uh, they survived it all. And I thought, I could think of nobody who'd be more appropriate to really kind of be part of the conversation and as they uh, answer some of the questions from their perspective. So we have a number of your questions. Uh, let's just start with a word of prayer, and then we'll start this conversation. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for all these good folks who are here Lord, we, uh, we want the wisdom from above. We want the truth of your word. But we also, Lord, we, we often are so helped when we can see how the, your truth has expressed itself and filtered it through our lives. It enabled us to become those overcomers, to experience victory. And I know that all of us here are in different places in life, and yet we all have one thing in common, that if we are married or planning someday to be married, we, we want it to be joyful, as we talked about the joyful marriage that you intended from the beginning. So guide us in our conversation and give us wisdom, we pray, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So anyway, I don't know if you guys want to start with any disclaimers. Uh, <laughs> Are we supposed to? <laughs> it may be safe. You can't, you can't be held liable for anything that right. you say, right? Right. Okay, well, I got a stack of questions here, and I... And I uh, since Dan has the mic, uh, he'll probably start off. But you guys decide how you want to divide up the labor of answering these questions. The first question I have here is, uh, does God show signs about someone we want to marry? For example, I'm in love with a girl, and I've asked God to show me signs if she is the one, but she has a boyfriend. <laughs> Sign number one. <laughs> Uh, you know, as I, as I think back on, on the two of us and when um, we started our relationship, we both met at a hospital where we were working in town here and uh, got to know each other as friends. And I thought, wow, this gal's really interesting, but I didn't feel this connection. And um, we kind of engaged in conversation for a few months and decided, um, she mentioned that her birthday was coming up and I knew that she liked to ski. So I said, you know, hey, let's go skiing for uh, your birthday. And I'd take her up to Schweitzer. And um, in the past, when I had dated people, I'd always run that through my filter and look at them and go, could I be married to this individual? And you're like, oh, no, no, but I could, <laughs> I could date him. And uh, when we were driving up there, and again, we were just friends, and we were driving up there, and I'm, I, we're talking back and forth, and I'm just thinking, I could seriously marry this girl. And I felt like, you know, looking back, I really felt like that was God saying, this is the one for you. And so, you know, that's the first indication. And then you have to go through that process of, 
of kind of testing that out, I think. And, you know, that whole day was one of just a perfect day on the mountain, sunshine, fresh snow, talking nonstop about things that were about life, not just surface things. And you realize you have, while you have a lot of things that are opposite, you also have a lot of things that are in common. And I think, you know, as we, as our relationship kind of deepened, and this was, um, you know, I'll just share, I wasn't a believer at the time. And, uh, and she was, she grew up in, in, a, in a Baptist church. I think that counts. Uh, and, <laughs> kidding. I was Catholic, so I know that doesn't count. <laughs> yeah. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, and uh, so we had that immediate discussion about, uh, she, she was wise enough and willing enough to say, um, this relationship can't go, can't proceed farther uh, unless, you know, you have that same faith and same belief that I have. But she also said, but I don't want it to be for me. And that was the thing that uh, really told me that she was serious about her faith and, and serious about finding someone that God had for her. Even though she felt it at the time, she was willing to walk away if, if God didn't give her that sign that I was the guy. So what do you want to say about that, honey? I was pretty good I'm skier. real curious, Janie, as to your perspective. Did it look the same through your eyes? <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank you, honey. I appreciate it. Wasn't, I wasn't even looking for a spouse at that point. I was at a point in my life where I realized that um, I needed to focus on me and my relationship with God. That was what was important. Um, and I couldn't worry about who my spouse was because, you know, I'd been to college and, and, you know, at college I was like every corner I went around because, is that the one? Is that the one? Oh, maybe. Um, and I realized that maybe I wasn't ready. Um, so I needed to get my relationship right. And I think um, that's what I tell my girls and have told my girls. You can't be, you know, looking for your spouse. You need to f work on yourself. Because if you're not ready, God's not going to bring your spouse into the mm -hmm. picture anyway. So as far as looking for signs, I think you have to go back to yourself. And are you really ready? Are you sure you're ready? You know, um, what is your relationship with God? And are you willing to wait? Um, and he'll, he will bring the person that you're supposed to marry into your life. But it's not in your control, and you can't plan it. Hmm. Does that make sense? Well, kind of what I'm hearing you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is it's almost like you found each other in the midst of not looking for someone. Yes. Yeah. Right. And, and because he wasn't a Christian, and I was at a point where I knew I wasn't going to settle for a non-Christian. I knew it was wrong to do that. I needed, I needed a strong Christian. I needed to have that... Um, interaction with a Christian. And I, I wanted a, my husband to be the leader. Um, you know, we needed to be a pair. Mm. So, I mean, the sign number one, he wasn't a Christian. So, okay, this, this probably isn't the one. Well, you're, you're hitting on something I think is, is critical, especially for young people that, or people who haven't been married, is realizing that there's a dimension of relationship that cannot exist if Jesus isn't in the relationship, right? Exactly. I mean, you can have a, you can have an intellectual relationship, you can have an emotional connection, you certainly very easily can have a physical connection, but the spiritual dimension is a very real, powerful, and 
maybe kind of predominates in the relationship as it, as it grows together. Yeah. But I think that's, I, I, I think that I, sometimes I talk to people, I think have kind of a desperation about finding somebody. Yeah. You know, you get, especially as, as the uh, biological clock begins to uh, unwind, you know, it's, it's like there's this panic that comes in and, and there's got to be a, a faith aspect where you believe that God has someone for you and he is going to make that connection. I don't know if that's something that you reflect or, or look back on and say, this was a God-ordained thing. Yeah, I, I think you have to be happy in yourself with God, that relationship, you know, and you just go along. You're not looking. You're just completely happy and fulfilled and go along. And then he did come along. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> just going to throw that out for you, honey. You know, uh... <laughs> It, it's true, though. I, 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 was, I certainly wasn't looking either at the time. And um, one of the things that really struck me as, I, as our relationship progressed was that she was so totally opposite of anyone I had ever dated before. And yet I was drawn to her and that whole idea of the opposites attract. And one of the things I'll, I'll say, too, is that, you know, as we've raised our, our six kids, our four, four daughters, two boys, um, you know, we always talk about the importance of being equally yoked and both having that relationship. And one of the things I'm very sensitive to is that, you know, when we did meet, I was not a believer. And, and yet, through, um, through Janie and through some other friends, God really got me to that point where I recognized I needed him. And so, I, maybe I throw that out as a little bit of hope. If you have uh, a son or a daughter out there who is beginning a relationship with someone who's not a believer, you know, obviously we need to counsel them on the the struggles will, that will happen by the two unequally yoked, but also be praying for that individual because your, your child may be what God is using to bring that other individual to Christ. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. There's, I'm, I'm kind of abnormal in so many different ways that, that I, I'm, I'm pretty accepting in a lot of ways. I also recognize what's right and what's wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, God saved a wretch like me, so I figured he yeah. can do it with some other. It's easy, though, too, to get caught up, you know, with a non-Christian. You, you know, you, you fall in love with them, and they're a non-Christian, and you know that it's not okay, but, oh, you know, I can change them, or, you know, I'll just... And, you know, I talked with my own daughter about that. It's like, you can't, you can't do that. You can pray for them. That's wonderful to keep praying for them, be a friend to them, but, but be very, very careful that you keep your boundaries because you don't want to cross over and settle for this person when it's not the one that God has for you. And as far as the person who has, thinks he has a girlfriend that already has a boyfriend, <laughs> you never know. Maybe that is somebody. I mean, if you really feel drawn to them, then why not? Pray for them. Continue on, but get your relationship right with your, yourself. Yeah. And, never, um, and never engage in a relationship with that person who has a relationship somewhere else. I mean, like Janie said, you're praying for that, praying for that person, and and if God happens to orchestrate a breakup of that relationship by nothing that you've done, but the circumstances appear to be by His leading, then you know that's an that's uh, maybe that's an opportunity from God. Maybe He's saying something, but uh, but the, we can't engage in a relationship with someone who already has uh, <laughs> someone else. Do you think that attraction is indication of God's leading in a relationship? 
When you say attraction, are you talking physical? Or are you well, you know, I just, uh, some enchanted evening, you look across the room and... <laughs> sounds like a song. <laughs> it sounds like a song, right? <laughs> uh, I, I think it... It can. It really depends. Yeah, I think it can be, but I don't think that's the only thing. I mean, we all know that that, you know, people lose hair and get <laughs> fat. God and, forbid. <laughs> no, you know, you know what I'm saying? We, we lose that. And so the attraction it can be something that draws us to, but really it's the relationship yeah. uh, that, that has the friendship, the deep friendship that we have, the, the experiences that we do have together that really build the relationship and make it stronger and make it yeah. last through the years. Good deal. Let me see if I can uh, move this in a little bit different direction. Um, this question um, for those of us who are a little bit older and more seasoned, yeah. uh, how might or should the marriage relationship change after kids have grown up and left the house? Is there a change at all in what marriage should look like regarding the roles of husbands and wives or new areas to focus on after raising kids is no longer a primary responsibility? That's not fair, because we're just trying to figure that out. <laughs> Our youngest just graduated from high school, and we thought we were going to be empty nesters. <laughs> and he's still at home <laughs> so for a while longer. Um, so we were trying to figure out what does that look like. I, I think um, it does free us up to spend more time together. We, can, we don't have the responsibility of you know, the kids at home now, so we can go do stuff, you know, go away for the weekend and not worry about who's going to feed the kids. Or Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I would say that uh, absolutely the relationship changes because, you know, depending on the size of your family, you're invested in that, trying to raise that child, especially in a godly home where you're, you know, you're praying for them, you're interacting, you're trying to teach them every... You know, everywhere you go, you want to take them with you and, and, and instruct them and, and help them become young adults. And, um, and, you, and, and at that time when they leave, it's, I think it's pretty common for, for couples to look at each other and just say, when did you get here? Who, who are you? And, and now we've got to reconnect and we've got to figure out how to, you know, you start thinking back, remember when we were dating all those years ago? What did we do? And how do we get reconnected? And what do we talk about? Because... I mean, everybody, everybody that I know, when you have kids and you go out to dinner, what are you talking about? You're talking about the kids, you know, for the most part. You try and have conversations about, hey, how was your day or whatever. But, you, you know, it's, you talk about whatever is the most important thing to you uh, at that time. And so it's easy to slip into, I think, um, talking about the children and what they're going through. And so, and to neglect that, um, that intimate uh, time with your spouse where you're really continually talking with them and getting to know. I, Janie said a million times, you know, remember when we used to talk? Remember when we were dating and we used to talk all the time? And I just say no, but <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> and, and we, so I think it's just natural. And then you have to, you have to figure out why, you know, what did we do? I mean, what really drew us together? And, um, and so I think it does change for the good as long as we're willing to kind of look at each other and, and figure out mm -hmm. who that person has become. If we've lost touch with that, hey, that's like a new person. I get to meet them all over again. It's interesting. One of the things that I mentioned at one of the services last Sunday, I think it was me, um, 
that the two highest periods of most likelihood for divorce is in the first five years and after 15 years. And I think a lot of it is due to the fact that when you, uh, before kids are, are, or they're young in the family, it's easy to have a lot of tension and stress and marriages fall apart. But when you survive those years of raising the kids and then suddenly you are an empty nester and uh, you, as you said, you look at each other and realize we haven't built, continued to build our relationship through the years. So the fact that you guys have survived this, I suspect that you did do things through those years with all the kids that was about you. Yeah. You know what? Um, Can you remember that, Janie? You kind of have a deer in the headlight look right now. <laughs> Let me fill this in for you, honey. <laughs> Cupcake. Remember that time? One time when we went out on a date years ago. No, I. You know, one of the things that um, that we always did was whenever, um, whenever we had a time, an opportunity for a big vacation. Um, I would, Janie and I would do that together. Like we would go to Hawaii together or we would go, um, you know, somewhere else on a trip somewhere, just the two of us. Uh, because, you know, not that I, I don't like my kids or anything, but you have to, you have to do those things. You know, we still took vacations with the kids. We still did things with them, but, but we always made sure, you know, every so many years to go take one, uh, away from everybody, just the, just the two of us. And I, um, I think that gave us some opportunity to reconnect and just uh, remember how much fun it was to be uh, just with the two of us without a million different distractions and, uh, and just enjoy that time. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to remember that the time in which your kids are in the home is a, is a relatively small period of time in relationship to the entirety yeah. of your lives. I think like my wife and I have, we've been empty nesters probably for 20 years and we love it. <laughs> but you know it's, it's a different whole different dynamic it's a whole di but if you end up uh, on that side where you've so focused upon the kids that that's all you have in relationship there's an identity crisis that you go through as a couple well let me ask you so when you guys finally got the kids out of the house was it a tough transition and it was tough the getting them out of the house <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing my son bend down and said you're 23 you've got a full-time job Go find a new place to live. <laughs> His response was, why? And I said, because we don't want you here anymore. <laughs> and he says, I want to stay. I get free food, free laundry. <laughs> How is this bad? I said, this is, this is all the reason. I mean, seriously, this was a serious conversation we actually had. Because he thought, I like living at home. Yeah. But, you know, he, 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 did, he did move out. He was a little offended. He was a little offended. So what did you guys do to get through that transition? We took... Before the kids ever left, we took every opportunity we had to do something without the kids. I mean, we didn't have a lot of money to work with. We couldn't afford to go to Hawaii or do anything like that. And almost, you know, it's like you, if most people are in a financial situation where you just can't just hire a nanny and take off to fly to the Bahamas, you know. But this, like you guys did. But. Uh, <laughs> I got family members to help out with that. Yeah. But I, I think we, we took every opportunity we had, just even if it was just to stay in the Davenport downtown, which was for us was like going to the moon, you know. It was yeah. like this is, but just that idea of being able to relate to each other uh, without diapers, without bottles, without crying kids, without, was, was huge. I, I, I love it when I hear parents uh, say, say that they have regular date nights. They put it on the calendar, they do it. We never did that, but I think that is a great idea because... True, we couldn't afford it. When, 
I did get a job finally, honey. That was good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, when, I, when my wife and I, when I, we were staff at Calvary and Costa Mesa, um, we, were, we were very, very poor and uh, really had no money. And, and my one day a week off, and that was on Wednesday, which was really convenient time. But, you know, we didn't have anything to do. But we, made, we started doing a date thing every morning, every Wednesday morning. Our first thing was to drop the kids off at school and we would go to Bill's Burger and get their dollar breakfast. <laughs> and I don't know, it sounds crazy, but that was just was huge for us because it was a time where it was just us, no kids, and we didn't have to cook or clean. I mean, and, and those, are, those are things that doesn't have to require a lot of money, but it just... There just has to be a space where conversation, even if it's going to, we'd find just exotic coffee places and buy a cup of coffee and just sit and talk and kind of pretend that we had a life outside of kids <laughs> for, a few, for a few hours. But it's, it's just important to maintain that. And it's, uh, yeah, I don't mean to beat that horse to death, but that's, that's important. Well, here's a, here's a, a challenging one. Oh, Again, man, it deals with... <laughs> Um, I am dating someone who has a fear of children and does not want them because their thoughts and understanding of what a marriage is has been polluted by others who regret having children and hate coming home from work because of their families or children. They fear that they will have to choose two out of three, either God, spouse, or children. I would really appreciate if Pastor Ken could cover the topic of what children mean within a Christian family and what God's purpose for children is. Get after it, buddy. <laughs> well, I, I, I will offer my, my perspectives or my opinions, my point of view. But I guess the question I would have is, was there ever a time in, in your family where so, you just kind of thought, why did I have so many kids or kids at all? Yes. <laughs> so that's not a weird Weird dynamic. I mean, you're not a stranger. No, I don't. I don't do you want to take this one, eh? I don't want to do it all the time. Okay. <laughs> um, let me take a, a giant step back. I grew up uh, in a family of uh, five kids. Both my parents worked a lot, and I was number two of five, and there was a big gap between me and the next sibling. And so my sister, my older sister, and I did um, all the cooking, all the cleaning. Uh, watching of them. We did the laundry. We cleaned the house. We did it all. On the weekends, uh, I was helping my dad with stuff. So I, I had very little time, and I really resented my siblings. And so I can relate to someone before you have kids thinking that, you know, I don't want to have kids. Because I remember us talking about thinking maybe we'll have one or two, but, you know, and then we end up having six. But the difference is, as you all know, uh, yes, they are a ton of work. Absolutely. But when they're your own, and they come out, and you know God is behind that, uh, I don't think there's a more powerful feeling in the world than when you hold your own child. I mean, I get emotional just thinking about it, and I, and I think that's what changed me, was seeing, number one, knowing that God or, had ordained that we were supposed to have children, and he was giving us these amazing blessings on loan for a period of time, and my biggest prayer every day was, God, don't let me screw them up, please. Just fill in wherever, uh, wherever I fall short, which happens quite a bit. And he was mm -hmm. faithful to do that. So, um, so I get that. I get that that reservation to have kids when you when they're not yours. Uh, but once you know, if you're if you're walking with God and you're praying for those those children before they come, they are truly a gift from Him. 
Yes, they are a ton of work. And yes, you're going to go through ups and downs emotionally and griefs and traumas and all those things that go along with it. Um, but there's never once where I thought they weren't a blessing from him. Mm -hmm. I have to admit that I, when we first got married, I honestly thought I don't think I can be a mother. I don't think I should have children. Um, partly because of, you know, my growing up, um, uh, I didn't come from a great home life. So I took the psychology classes and, you know, the way you're treated is the way you're going to treat your children. And I thought, I can't, I can't do that. Um, so, you know, I kind of struggled with that. So, but, um, I felt like I was called to have children, you know, that, that they are a blessing. And then I, I ended up, I did get pregnant um, fairly soon after we were married. And still, I was terrified because I just thought, I, I can't do this. And then I thought, okay, well, maybe I can have a boy and now I'll be a good boy mom. <laughs> well, but I had a girl. My first was a girl. And so I was like, oh, I'm panicked. Um, but as soon as you know, like he says, you hold that baby and you realize this is such a blessing, such a gift. And not everybody gets to have that blessing. And, you know, and I, ultimately I think God decides if you're going to have children or not. You know, you can try and prevent it or do different things, but, but it's really God's call. So why not accept the blessing and mm. go on? And honestly, then, you know, after I... We thought we would have two, you know, and have the American, all-American family, whatever. But, you know, I ended up realizing that, no, I, I'll take as many as I'm blessed with. Um, but that really got to me, especially thinking, I remember being in a Bible study one time, and, and the other moms were um, talking about, oh, the kids were such a pain, and oh, they couldn't wait to be... You know, they'd be in school or they just, they, you know, it just was a lot of work. But there was another lady sitting over um, that I just got the feeling that she was really hurt by that conversation. Well, I talked to her later and it ended up she couldn't have children. Mm. And I thought how cruel that was to her because she so wanted that blessing. And yet all those other moms... <laughs> We're just taking it for granted. Mm -hmm. And that forever changed my thinking. And I thought, I, no, I'm going to count it a blessing every minute I have with these kids and strive to do the best I can. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think from a, when you look at it from a biblical point of view, the Bible says uh, the two become one flesh. And that is uh, no more fully illustrated than it is the fact that a man and woman can come together in marriage and have a child. And there's something profound about having kids because um, it really does do violence to your selfishness gene. <laughs> it is, it's, I mean, it really does, you know, I mean, not that you can't be selfish if you have kids, but it, nothing will challenge that in you more because, uh, <clears throat> you know, I just remember with our first baby, uh, up every two hours, ready to eat. And, you know, I mean, I, we were on, I, you know, my wife says I, I would get out of bed without awakening, walk over to the crib, pick the baby up, walk over, 
plug it into the nipple and climb back in bed and go to sleep. And I would not have no memory of it in the morning because I was totally exhausted. <laughs> you know, You're a good husband, Ken. <laughs> no, I'm a robot. <laughs> but I mean, seriously, you, you do. I mean, it, it does you suddenly, they are expensive, they're hard work, they're demanding. They, they get sick without thinking about your schedule. I mean, there are so many things. It's so rude. So rude. <laughs> but I think that it, 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 it forces you to grow up in ways that I, I, I don't mean to say that if you don't have kids, you're not grown up. But I tell you, nothing attacks your selfishness gene as violently <laughs> as, as having kids. And you look back on it and say, I have grown as a person because of that. Yeah. And I, I, I think that uh, it is a blessing. It is a joy. But... Um, it's, uh, I, re I remember uh, not too long ago watching uh, some home movies. And, you know, when the kids are that, that young age, it's a blur. You forget half of things. <laughs> and I'm watching the movie, and I'm like, when did I have a beard? <laughs> <laughs> Whose kid is that? Oh, that, oh wow. <laughs> it just, you forget so much. I mean, it's just, you're just at, it's fast pace. And you just, there are big segments of life that you can forget during the process. I mean, it's not, when you have a big family, it's not, uh, it's not easy, it's, but it's what we're called to do. Absolutely. Well, here's a, a little more, I mean, it's, I hope this is fairly obvious, and, uh, but the question is, what does the Bible say about physical and verbal abuse? And I don't know, uh, you can share whatever you feel like on that regarding it, but I think that we need to understand that you can have one or the other, or both in a relationship. Sometimes you don't have physical abuse, but there's verbal abuse. Um, any thoughts? Uh, no. <laughs> no, um, I, obviously it's wrong. I mean, no matter what, it's wrong. And, and you know, you were talking about that um, this Sunday, you were talking about the thing that stuck with me was when you said, um, if you have contempt for that person uh, you're in that relationship with, uh, you're, I, I don't remember what you ended it with, but I just remember thinking, that's bad. And to have uh, the ver verbal or physical abuse, there's got to be contempt. And, you know, there's a, there's a lack of respect for that individual. There's a lack of, of seeing them with value. There's, um, there's, we go through these stressful times and we react to it and saying, instead of saying, you know, this is someone I love who is there for me all the time and why would I act like that? And I uh, I'm sure, I have no doubt, I've, we've, I've yelled uh, in the process, I've lost at times because life gets stressful, and I did not do a good job of, at that moment, turning it over to Christ and saying, how am I supposed to do this? You know, I don't know, I'm, I'm angry now, I'm frustrated with this, and, and I lost it, and I know that's not right. And, and I, I wouldn't say that, you know, I'm, I'm verbally or physically abusive. I think we, there's a difference between doing that all the time and just losing it. I remember when we were first married, we were in this little apartment, and we got, in, we got into a big old fight, and I was so frustrated. I had a pair of tennis shoes on the counter, and I grabbed one, and I just threw it down on the floor, and it landed flat and made this huge noise, and it scared her so bad. I saw the look on her face, and I thought, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That's a little <laughs> over the top. But I think there's a difference in just going through life and getting upset um, or, you know, <clears throat> regularly being abusive. Yeah. Well, I think the Bible's pretty clear how we're to deal with each other, and it's in love. 
Um, so again, if you have contempt in your heart, then you don't have love in your heart. <laughs> um, but if you're coming from the standpoint of um, someone who is in a relationship and the other person is physically or verbally abusive, then what do you do? You're, we're still called to love that person. I don't think it's okay to stay if you're in physical harm. But again, I think you got to pray for some love for that person. Right? Well, that would be the there's, only a, there's a follow-up question somebody else asked, I think that kind of ties into this. And it says, is there ever a point where enough is enough in a, in a, in a relationship, particularly a dating relationship? Mm -hmm. um, I think the question is somewhat self-answering. Enough yeah. is actually enough. Yeah. Yeah. But there is, there, but there are, are there signs that you could look at a relationship and say, this is no longer a safe place to be. Yeah. I think the question is, do I stay in the relationship or do I physically remove myself? I think, do you want to kind of go on? No, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I, I think, and I'm certainly not a psychologist or anything, but I think when there is abuse, there's an element of control. This individual has to have control in the situation. Anytime you see um, you're in a relationship and you realize this person always has to be in control, they have to dictate what I do and how I do it, uh, that is never a good thing. And I think, you know, again, I'm not a psychiatrist or anything, but I think that it's not uncommon for that controlling, manipulative uh, individual to grow into an abusive one. And I think the sign of when I can't do anything because this individual is jealous of everything I do, uh, gets upset over the littlest things, I think that's, it, it, I think it's, I think it's a pretty good sign that that's not a healthy relationship. It's interesting you mentioned the word jealousy because uh, that's a very common dynamic in relationships where one spouse is threatened or feels jealous or fearful that the other one is going to be unfaithful or you know, mm -hmm. trade them in for a, another version. And uh, have you guys ever had to wrestle with that jealousy issue? I did. Honestly, mm -hmm. I did. I think um, partly because um, my parents got divorced when, um, when I was like 20, and, um, and I had this abandonment thing. And, I, and there was a, an outside relationship that I really felt like broke that relationship up. And I was scared to death. I was going to end up in a relationship with someone that I couldn't trust. Uh, and, and, and I was, uh, I, I didn't do anything outwardly, but I found myself being jealous in relationships. Like, well, what's he doing talking to that person? What, what? I didn't do anything about it. But when Janie and I first started uh, dating and got into a relationship, I really felt like God said, you can trust her. You can trust her. And I don't know if he, you know, I wasn't a believer before, so I don't know if he would have said that in the other relationships, but it gave me a comfort in knowing that um, as long as I'm doing my job as a husband, mm -hmm. as long as I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying to be the leader, the spiritual leader of the family, I'm trying to, you know, embrace her and encourage her and uplift her and, uh, and all those things that I'm called to do, and I don't do them every day, all day long, I'm here to tell you, but I'm, I'm striving for that. I'm striving to be that husband I'm supposed to be. As long as I'm doing that, then why should I worry about her going elsewhere? Mm -hmm. I, I think it's important as, as a wife that we aren't worrying about that. If, we, if we're thinking that, we're thinking that our husband is going to have an affair because he's working in an office with beautiful women and you're at home with baby stains all over you. Um, <laughs> you know, um, 
that can be discouraging, but you can't dwell on that. You, you have to think, no, you know, th those are not thoughts that are coming from God. Um, I have to think on the positive and build him up and pray for my husband that he would um, be um, strong and that he wouldn't be tempted or whatever. But if you dwell on it, it can come to pass, I think, more than mm -hmm. if you didn't. I think it, I think you can come a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. because you start behaving in a way. I mean, to, to challenge somebody and accuse them of being uh, unfaithful to you based upon a fear or a suspicion is a pretty, uh, pretty assaulting kind of thing to say. I mean, it really does create tensions. But I find it interesting, though, Danny, because you, when you mentioned about your parents getting divorced, now, I grew up with, I, I had to battle with jealousy as well because uh, my parents didn't divorce. They just had a lot of their own friendships. And when, you, when I was 12 years of age and I discovered that one of my parents was having an affair, uh, and the psychic effect of that on me was, was profound as a child. I mean, I didn't realize this until much later. But what I find interesting is I probably never would have ever come to recognize how that affected me if it had not been for being married. I mean, in other words, the context, as I'm striving to be in a relationship with my wife and I keep on bumping up against this fear and the suspiciousness, you're left with a choice. You can either destroy that relationship by pursuing that struggle, staying in that place, or you have to begin to uh, really address it and deal with it. And that's when we talk about the purpose of marriage. I really believe God uses marriage to help us grow. But, you know, it's, it's a funny thing for me because I know when I discovered that my parents weren't faithful to each other, it was so emotionally painful for me that I know I determined in myself I would never, ever be unfaithful to whoever I married because it was actually nauseating to me to even think about doing that to someone else and putting my kids through that same experience. So it, it, it's, I think there's so many things that we can learn and, and, and garner from those kinds of struggles. But the, most of us have to recognize that we came out of dysfunctional families because that's the only kind there is. I mean, I, I, you know, some, of, some are less dysfunctional, but you know, you're not the only one who think your parents are weird. Uh, I was talking with my oldest son, Ben. Uh, we were visiting them a few weeks ago, and, and uh, his, his two oldest kids are teenagers now, and he said, you know, it's like, he says, my kids think I'm weird. Well, I said, we've always felt that, but, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, he's, Sherry says it's so strange because they're really good kids, but they're teenagers, and they're going through what teenagers do. They start to find their own identity and they're trying to figure out who they are as opposed to who their parents are and where they fit in the equation of the universe. And, and, and I shared this very comforting word with my son. I said, Ben, payback is so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> but he's the point is that I just wanted him to let him know this is, what it's, this is normal. This is normal. You're sinners, your kids are sinners, we live in a sinful world. Surprise! You're, you're going to struggle with stuff. Struggling is not the problem. Surrender to the struggle is the problem. When we give up, we leave the marriage, we, we run away from the responsibilities, the problems, that's the problem. 
that's when it really becomes uh, a painful thing. Which leads me to this question. These are getting deep. Is there any right reason for divorce in God's eyes? I think that's really a very individual thing that it's it's not just a pat answer. Every situation is different. Um, it's a, such a painful thing, and, I, and I've walked through it with a couple of friends, you know, and hating to see them divorce and praying that somehow it would it would work, you know, that they could reconcile. But um, there was a point where, no, it, I don't know. God was not in the center of it, and so it couldn't continue. So I, I guess, yeah, I don't know. It's hard. Yeah, <laughs> it is hard, and I agree with you, honey. I mean, it's it's so individual, and we, you know, we can't, to have that flat um, answer of no, never, and not walk in someone's shoes and understand what they're going through. Um, I, I, a good friend of mine, um, you know, ignored the signs of uh, controlling, manipulative, abusive. Uh, man because she wanted to get married so badly and ended up in just a horrific marriage abusive like you can't even believe and uh, and and you know I was I was so glad for her when she got to the point where she was strong enough to walk away from that marriage and you know she had to it took her a long time because she had to come to grips with her relationship with God and reconciling that between uh, the two of them and she felt like at that point where she had done everything she possibly could and yet it wasn't changing, it was only getting worse, and she got to that point. And, you know, I was, I was happy for her. And, and, and maybe that sounds bad, I don't know, but um, when, you, when you have a friend, when you have a, a family member, and you see them going through that uh, continual uh, escalating abuse, uh, that's not, and that, in, that other individual has no desire at all to get that resolved, to get help, to change. And you know, um, we, we've seen we've seen these couples go through this thing, and they, and I, and and they, you know, you see one of them is absolutely broken. That is a broken individual, broken in the sense that um, they need they need God to fix them. I mean, they're so broken beyond the normal broken, and and yet they are unwilling to do that. And the other spouse says, "Well, if we can just get marriage counseling," and my first thought is that individual needs to get regular counseling and get get themselves figured out with between God mm-hmm. before the two of you can figure out the relationship. And I don't, I don't know how you feel about that, but I, I feel like, you know, to try and do marriage counseling when one person is so damaged and has no desire to change, um, that's like trying to mm-hmm. put out a forest fire with a squirt gun. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, and this is as obvious as a pastor, this is a question that I've had to address and, and work through with people from every possible perspective there is. And you come to certain conclusions. I mean, you start off biblically. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible does have an allowance for divorce. And the very first one that Jesus gives, if there's marital unfaithfulness, the word pornea that's used there refers to unfaithfulness of every and all kinds. I mean, we want to, you know, people, I I remember talking to a gentleman one time who uh, had oral sex with a co-worker and he said, well, it's not adultery because we didn't fornicate. 
I'm going, I'm sorry. <laughs> the text doesn't, doesn't designate. It just, you are having intimate relationships with somebody who's not your spouse. It's, it, it's adultery. And I think that there's all these kind of things that people begin to play these kind of games. But the reality is that if somebody is, is unfaithful in the physical relationship, Jesus said that you have permission to leave because the relationship becomes broken at that time. And I've had couples who've, who have uh, come to me after there's been adultery in the relationship and they've asked the question, well, do we, are, do we, should we get a divorce? And, and as a pastor, I, and I think this is true of all of us, I can never give anybody permission to divorce. I never counsel anybody to divorce. Um, I, I'll explain to them what the Bible says, but it's not my place. I think you're right. It's, you have to decide, even when you have biblical grounds, you have to go before God and say, God, is that your will? Because I've known many places where there's been adultery and the marriage has survived. But I also have certain guidelines I put out to couples. I simply say that if you're going to, uh, if the, your spouse repents for their sin and you've decided that you're going to stay in the relationship, what you really have to do is kind of renew your vows because the previous vows were violated and broken. If you as the offended party decide I'm going to forgive them, that's great. But you're also giving up your right to use that as a future reference point. You know, back when you, you know, and, and that's what happens a lot of times is that this is something kind of domically soared that we hang over their head saying, you know, you did this in the past and that becomes our default for blaming them. So that kind of my warning to them saying that if you're going to restore the relationship and if that's what you want, I applaud it and I encourage it if you can heal it, especially if you have kids involved. Because the real victims and the real people who suffer from a divorce are the kids, even when there's been an adulterous relationship. So if you have children, you really have to bring that into consideration. My parents sat my brother and I down when I was 14 and said, we've decided to get a divorce. And my brother and I pleaded with them not to get a divorce, and they felt so bad about it that they decided to stay together. Now their marriage was not a good marriage. Uh, they, they put a capital D in the word dysfunction. In fact, they capitalized the entire word. But even that was better for us as children than if my parents had divorced. We didn't have to choose who we were going to live with. We didn't have to struggle with one parent struggling financially. We didn't have to deal with step-parents coming into our lives and trying to figure out how we wrap ourselves around that and stepchildren. The complexities of divorce and remarriage are so huge that it should be something we should be afraid to even have to consider. But is there a point where you do? And we get back to the issue of the abuse situation. I remember one time when I was at Calvary Costa Mesa, I had a woman come into me and tell me that her husband was abusive and described the relationship. And I said, you know, my counsel to you is that number one, your husband is a criminal. Physical abuse is a crime. Even though you're a spouse, it doesn't, it's not legal to beat somebody up just because you're married to them. It is, according to the legal statutes, it is a crime. Secondly, it's a manifestation of a serious personality disorder that needs counseling. Because you have a personality disorder if you think that you have a permission to strike another person for whatever reasons you have. So I said, based upon those two things and the fact that he doesn't take any responsibility for his behavior, I counsel you to separate from him. Find a safe place and go there. I, didn't, I wasn't counseling a divorce, but I said, don't, you're not called by God to stay in an unsafe situation. Well, 
she uh, thanked me for my advice, left. A week later, she shows back up in my office. Just about every blood vessel in her face is broken. Her eyes are blood red shot. And, you know, I mean, it's a pretty terrifying look. And she explained to me what happened. That her husband lost his temper again, flew off the handle, and was choking her to death on the floor of their apartment. The police broke the door down and were able to pull him off because of the screams that were reported to them. And she comes in and she sits down after all this and she informed me, I don't care what you tell me, I'm leaving him. <laughs> just going, but it was just, it was, it, was a, it was a strange thing that many times men, women, and sometimes even men feel like they're obligated to stay in a place of physical harm. One time I was, I was living in Denver, Colorado, I remember in going into this big park, sharing the gospel at night, and this gentleman was there and I walked up to him and started sharing Christ with him and he said, I don't want to hear it, and I just kept on going and he kept on reiterating he didn't want to hear me anymore. And finally he said, look, if you don't shut up, I'm going to cave your face in with my fist. And so I said, okay, and I walked away, got far enough away so he couldn't reach me. I said, but Jesus loves you and you need to give your life to him. And then I took off running because I felt no obligation to have my face caved in. <laughs> you know? And I think, I, you know, but my whole point is that sometimes we think that staying in an abusive and relationship is our obligation, uh, but also keep in mind that sometimes verbal abuse can be just as deadly as physical abuse. So again, I can never tell somebody to get a divorce, but I often tell them you need to get into a safe situation and, and, and do what you need to do. It's, it's whether it's getting the restraining order, uh, all those things. Because what you're doing is you're, you're creating a separation where there's a space where God can begin to work. But it's, it, it's a uh, I just say it's, it's, I have a hard time with, with the abuse dynamic because I've seen the effects of it over the years. And um, it's one of those things I just, I'm, I'm pretty strong about. I mean, uh, never tell a person to get divorced, but I certainly tell them, get out of harm's way. You're not obligated to stand in the middle of the street and wait for the bus to come and hit you. You know, just get out of the way and let God deal with them. Now, it's interesting because there's other things that the Scripture talks. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about desertion, where your husband or wife leaves you and uh, has no intention of returning. That's biblical grounds. Paul, in fact, says, he says, if you're married to an unbeliever and your unbeliever doesn't want to be married anymore, more, then don't strive to make them stay in the marriage. Because he said, you know, you don't know, he makes a statement, you do not know whether he or she will be saved. You know, and I've heard people saying, well, I just know that if I hang in there, he or she will come to Christ. Paul makes it very clear. You do not know that for sure. And it's one of those things that if you're in a marriage where somebody wants out, um, sometimes the worst thing you can do is to pursue them. Many times I've had men whose wives have, have left them and are, want, are getting a divorce and stuff, and they will say to me, well, if I just keep on reaching out to her and reaching out to her. I know that I can win her heart back. <laughs> and, and I found that that's not really true. I said, I tell them the best thing you can do is put her into God's hands and seek God's face. Take the opportunity of your being alone to fast, to pray, to draw close to God, to grow in your relationship with Him and ask God to work on her heart or in the other case to work in the man's heart. Because we can't change other people. 
But when you're pursuing somebody who's trying to get away, well, let me ask you this. Somebody's chasing you. What do you do? Does it make you want to get closer to them? Or does it make you want to flee? And sometimes people just have to have their own Jonah moment. So Jonah had, he fled, and God let him flee. He had a, he had a, a large fish waiting for him. But, and I, I say that in relationship. When the partner leaves like that, you know, again, let God deal with them. Let God have his process. Um, and I found that many times in that, in that separation, there comes an encounter with God in that person's life that causes them to want to restore the relationship. But it's, it's unfortunate because what we're communicating many times is when we say things like, I can't live without you, number one, that's not true. Number two, it's not healthy. If my wife were to pass away, that would be, I think, I mean, sometimes I try to think of what it would be like, and I don't like to think about that because I don't know where anything is. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, I don't even know how, it's like your whole life is oriented, 46 years you organize your life around this other person, and suddenly they're not there. There's no organization left in your life. You just, I, I've seen people like that. You just wander kind of aimlessly trying to figure out what to do with yourself because part of you is gone, but you're going to live. You'll figure it out. You'll work it out. And sometimes God puts us in a situation because what he's really trying to do is get you to make him the only thing that you cannot live without. Because when I come to a place where I, the only thing I can't live without is Jesus, I'm a better husband. I'm a better father, I'm a better grandfather because Jesus is central and he's the one I'm following. When we don't do that, what happens is we end up in what's called a codependent relationship that our, the motive of our relationship is we, we're always trying to please the other person to make them like us. It's a beautiful thing when you're safe enough in a relationship that I don't have to do anything to get you to like me and there's probably there's very little I can do to get you not to like me. But the one thing is you know that the relationship is not dependent upon your performance. It's dependent upon the commitment. I said on Sunday, the man's vow to God, I will love her. His commitment is to God and his performance grid is, is and I need to perform to God's standards in the same way for the woman. When you come at marriage from that perspective, then you have a Christ-centered basis for your relationship. But if your relationship is always based upon how you perform or how the other person performs, you're going to find yourself in regular conflict because no matter how wonderful the other person is, there will be numerous occasions where they will not perform up to the standards that you've set for them. And uh, that's why I said on Sunday, you cannot say that you love somebody if you haven't had to forgive them over and over and over. It's that 70 times 70 dynamics. How many times? 70 times 70. My wife, I've had to forgive my wife exactly seven times in 46 years of marriage. She has had to forgive me twice. It's kind of like watching the national debt. <laughs> but you understand, that's, that's the basis of the relationship. It's a grace-based relationship because it's based upon the unlimited willingness to forgive the other person. Uh, 
unless, and, and even if you're in a separation situation where there's been abuse of one kind or another and you had to make a separation, you still need to find a way of being safe but also learning how to forgive. And you've never really grown in grace until you've had to be on your face and say, God, all I feel inside of me is anger, hatred, resentment, bitterness, rage. I mean, this is what's inside of me, but I know that's not you. I know that's sin, and I need you to heal me and give me a forgiven heart. And I often tell people, I say, <clears throat> they say, well, I've forgiven them. I said, great. Have they changed? Well, no. Great. I'm glad you forgave them, but don't go back. Don't go back until you're sure there's been a transformation to the point where there is no abandonment, there is no violence, there is no verbal abuse. I said, when God has healed that in their life, then you have something to begin a relationship with again. And, I, and this is how radical I am. When you feel like they have really repented, then instead of going back together, start going through marital counseling together, start going through a dating relationship together, learn how to build a relationship all over again because it's almost like when a hurricane or something comes and wipes out a community, the only real solution is you have to level the ground and lay a new foundation. There is... So I did have a few thoughts on that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we're out of time. And I want to thank you guys for being willing to be here and to be transparent and share your, your thoughts, your feelings, your dreams, your struggles, your, your failures, your bitterness, resentment, hatred. <laughs> no, we really do appreciate it. it thank you. Let's have a word of prayer and then go get your kids. Lord God, we thank you in the name of Jesus. I thank you for Dan and Janie. They've been such precious friends to my wife and I through these many years. It's been such a magnificent thing to watch how you've built them together and their family to be a real model of, of what it means to follow Christ as husband and wife and moms and dads. And I pray for the others in this room who have done the same, Lord. They have done yeoman's work, Lord, in, in just living out their faith, sometimes through painful stuff, sometimes recovering from divorces and separations and all sorts of things, adultery and, and all the rest, Lord. I pray, Father, that we would be known for people who have brought grace to the marriage relationship and that we've been able to manifest your love. And I pray that you would help all of these good folks to grow in, and experience your grace in marriage as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Go in his grace.